I'm Donna. And I'm Carrie. And we are Paranormal Chicks. Episode 116. Have y'all watched the documentary, The House in Between yet? If you haven't, like I said, stop what you're doing and go fucking watch it. (laughs) It really is good, y'all. Seriously. However, I do have another recommendation for you. This is on Hulu, and it's called Dave, and it is 10 episodes, and season two is coming. It was renewed for a second season. I'm super happy about it. I'm late to the game, as always, but it is so witty and funny. Like, seriously, it's the best. It's nothing to do with true crime. It is loosely based on a white rapper, Lil Dicky, y'all might know him. I had no idea who he was, but I'm obsessed with him after this. Anyway, it's it's just like... Witty and funny? Yeah. I mean, palate cleanser, if you need one. Well, we finally finished Ozark, and I was looking up to see when the new season was going to come out, and apparently, we may have to wait like two fucking years. Holy shit. I'm going to forget what happened. Well, they'll have a recap for it you. It better be the recap of the century. Well, it'll be a recap of two years. Hmm, touche. You know what we're going to recap? The new Patreoners we got. Heck yeah. Thank you so much, Mia B. from California. Jamie V. from Ontario. Mary Ellen T. from Nebraska. Brenda P. from Michigan. Miranda O. from New York. And Jennifer H. from Florida. Thank you all so much for joining Patreon. If you want an episode shout out and some of the well, I think, we think, amazing bonus content that they're getting over there, head on over, patreon.com slash the APC podcast. Okay, so hopefully, last week was really good. I really loved both of our stories last week. I did too. Maybe, hopefully, an ending this episode? Mine will have one. Okay, good. Well, all right. Things are opening up, and people are getting more restless and want to stretch their legs, So, I'm covering a place where you might want to think twice about before going. I'm talking about the Bennington Triangle. Any relation to the Bermuda Triangle? Oh, God. I knew you were going to say that. (laughs) A low-hanging fruit. (laughs) Well, it's not in Bermuda. It's an area of pure wilderness in the southwestern part of Vermont, and the hotspot of this quote unquote triangle is Glastonbury Mountain and the neighboring towns, which include Bennington, Woodford, Shaftesbury, and Somerset. Well, those sound very shishi. I know, right? Well, Vermont to me sounds very shishi. Like it's like so like movie picturesque to me. Yeah. It was given this nickname in 1992 by a paranormal author named Joseph A. Citro, and he kind of coined this term when he was doing a radio broadcast. It seems like this land has always been considered cursed by the local Native Americans, so tribes never settled in these areas and would only step foot on the property when they were burying their dead. They said it was cursed because of the quote-unquote like four winds, which was kind of true because the wind comes in at different angles and so the wind patterns very erratic and that affects the weather so in one minute it could be sunny 
and then literally a downpour five minutes. And so it can really mindfuck a, a hiker. It also affects vegetation because the battle of the wind gust made plants grow at odd angles instead of just straight up. So it would literally, like, you couldn't grow anything successful there. Also, there's this local lore of a stone in the mountains that if you stand on it, you might never be seen again. And that's because the stone would open up and basically swallow you within seconds of you stepping on the rock. What in the Venus flytrap is going on here? Right? However, there were people who settled on the land, and since the mountains and forest had plenty of trees, the settlers worked in lumber and charcoal industries. And they prospered. However, life in the town was hard. Because this town was where law didn't exist, and it was basically Vermont's last frontier. But it really didn't matter because the demise came soon after due to nothing being really left for wood. Only small saplings stood on the mountainside. You know, they had basically ransacked that whole place, you know, being industrial. But not to stay down too long, the townspeople had a plan and they would change and make this a tourist destination and no longer have an industrial one. So in 1894, the railroad that they had built switched over to trolley cars. The boarding houses were turned into nicer hotels, and there was even a casino. Sign me up. I was like, that's how you get me to go there. Well, finally in 1897, the town was rebranded and deemed a vacation destination. However, Mother Nature can be cruel Or maybe she's just best friends with karma because since the mountains were no longer densely populated with trees, it was very prone to flooding. And a year after it first opened as a destination, a flood washed out the tracks and that was it for the town. There was no rebuilding it this time. Hmm. Well, over time, the population of Glastonbury was so low that the state of Vermont unincorporated the city, the town. Damn. And that was in 1937. This was the first time the state ever did anything like that. And let me tell you the population. Three people. I swear to God, I almost guessed three. Oh, my gosh. Like, if you would have said how many people, I would have said, I was like, one, nah, three, three. Yeah, it was a husband, wife, and his mom, I think. They were all members of the same family, the Madison family, and they held every office they could. You know, I mean, it was just them. So it was seriously a ghost town. So the ghost town thing is obviously eerie if you think about it in the context of these houses up in the mountains and then like what the hills have eyes is going on here Mm -hmm. that, you know, you just come upon it and it's like, what? You know. A casino, like all the, like hotels, everything. Yeah. Even more eerie and weird is something called the Bennington Monster. Think cousin of Bigfoot because the monster was described as over six feet tall and fully covered with hair, like from its head to its toes. The first sighting was reported in the early 19th century. Picture a stagecoach 
full of passengers, but they had to come to an abrupt stop when they came up on a washed out road. Because again, prone to flooding. So the driver was looking around trying to assess the situation and that's when he spotted an extra large footprint in the mud, but it didn't look quite human. The horses were acting skittish, and even though it was bad weather, they were more skittish than they normally were when it was bad weather. He didn't even have time to comprehend what was going on because the monster attacked the stagecoach, and within a few blows, it was knocked over onto its side. The passengers heard a loud roar and only saw a pair of eyes staring back at them from the dark. And then the creature fled into the dark. And luckily, no one was harmed besides, you know, the stagecoach. Yeah. There was a recent sighting in September of 2003. A man named Ray Dufresne was driving by Glastonbury Mountain, and he saw something very large and black by the road. He said it was, again, well over six feet tall and, quote, hairy from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. I mean, maybe he had COVID hair and lack of wax. <laughs> I mean, No true. judgment. True. We've all been there. There's another sighting around that same time, and it was a man named Doug Dorst, and he was driving near Bennington College, and he thought he saw a man in a snowsuit, but the closer he drove, he realized that it was a creature and not really human. And that's really it. There's some others, but... I mean, you know, be careful in the woods. There might be a Bigfoot cousin. There you go. Yeah. But here's what truly makes the Bennington Triangle a mystery. There have been so many missing persons cases related to this area, like around 30 to 40 people. But we're focusing on five unsolved cases that occurred between 1945 and 1950. The first is Mitty Rivers, and he was 74 years old, a native to the area, and he spent his time working as a hunting and fishing guide. On November 12, 1945, he was guiding a group of four hunters up to the mountains for a hunting trip. Everything was going fine, but later on the way back to camp, Mitty got ahead of the group a little bit and suddenly vanished. The group thought, well, he might have just been hurrying to make a fire for us back at camp. You know, who knows? However, when they got back to camp, he was nowhere to be found. He went missing within the area of the Long Trail Road and Vermont Route 9. Police and a group of volunteers combed the area for hours. They didn't find him. The search attempts continued for over a month. But sadly, no trace was ever found. There were a few articles that said one time when they were searching, a single rifle cartridge was found in the stream. And that was like the only trace of him up to date. However, it's hunting and Mm -hmm. there's no way of knowing that that was his. And Especially back in 1945. Right. So it's just kind of like you're stretching it there. Mm -hmm. Paula Weldon was the second person to go missing in the Bennington Triangle. She was an 18-year-old sophomore at Bennington College. And on December 1st, 1946, 
she left her dorm and went off on a hike on the long trail. Many people recalled seeing her go, and she stood out because of her bright red coat. One of the people who saw her was Ernest Whitman, and he was an employee at Bennington Banner. And he was like, no, I gave her directions to the long trail because she wasn't sure. And then also, right when she got to the trail, there was a group of people that were like, girl, you're not dressed for this. Because mm-hmm. it was just like a light coat, and it was December, and the higher up you go, mm-hmm. and it's the long trail, it's going to get cold. She didn't have, like, water. She didn't have supplies. Yeah. So people were like, what you doing? Yeah, what are you doing? Like, honey, you need to go get get your stuff. But again, you know, it's like, okay, whatever. Maybe she's meeting someone, you know, who has all the stuff. Yeah. Who knows? Well, the last people who allegedly saw her were an elderly couple who were about 100 yards behind her. They saw her round a corner on the trail, and before they made that same turn, she disappeared. When they, you know, when they made it, it was a clear shot, and they could not see her. But there's really no other way she could have went. Yeah. But, again, they're like, that's fucking odd. However, maybe... She had to use the bathroom. Like, who knows? She might be squatted down over there. I don't know. Like, again, people mind their own business. Mm-hmm. And it's like, hmm, that's weird. And you don't think about it till, hey, this person's missing. Mm, it's it's like, all the news. Yeah. And you're like, wait, I did see a red jacket. You know what I mean? So. Well, and 100 yards is not that far. Mm-mm. Well, no one knew that she was missing till that Monday when Paula didn't show up for any of her classes. The college called the sheriff's department and 400 students and faculty members assembled to help search for her. It was like, I think a thousand people in the search parties. Yeah. They brought in bloodhounds. They used helicopters and they even had a clairvoyant that came in to help. For weeks, they combed the area. Her dad was wealthy, and so he offered a $5,000 reward and nothing, you know. And so on December 22nd, all efforts came to an end. There was never a body found, no clothes, no evidence. It's like she vanished. That has to be, like, the absolute hardest thing. Yeah, Well, people, like, questioned the quality of the search party and all, like, it was just kind of a mess a little bit, I guess. And so it actually led to the formation of the Vermont State Police. They didn't have it before. Damn. Yeah. Another interesting detail is that it's now, like, a superstition that it's, Bad luck to wear red while hiking Glastonbury Mountain. It's crazy how those superstitions start, you know? Mm -hmm. On December 1st, 1949, exactly three years to the day after Paula went missing, another person went missing. 
This time, it was a 68-year-old veteran named James E. Tedford, and he was a resident of the Bennington Soldiers' Home at that time. But he had been visiting family in St. Albans, Vermont, and at the time of his disappearance, he was returning home on a bus. The scheduled trip should have taken like eight hours, but heavy snow had caused a long delay. He was one of 14 passengers on a bus, and according to witnesses, including the bus driver, he got on the bus and was still on it at the last stop before arriving in Bennington. All of them saw James sleeping in a seat on the bus, and at some point between the last stop and Bennington, James disappeared. Off the bus? Off the bus. And... If the witnesses are correct, he would have disappeared just as the bus was traveling down Route 7 through the Bennington Triangle. Are we sure he wasn't just in the bathroom? Well, I don't know. His belongings were found still on the luggage rack, and an open bus timetable was discovered on his vacant seat. His wallet was on the seat and everything, and he was never seen since. What the hell? On October 12th, 1950, which was Columbus Day that year, the fourth person went missing. His name was Paul Jepson, and he was eight years old. Oh, baby. I know. Paul went with his mom while she went to feed some pigs, and it was at a dump site that they tended to. So, like, back in the day, if someone had acreage, it's like they could sell it or rent it to the county or something, and people could use it as a dump. And they used pigs because pigs eat anything. And that would help the dump not get overfilled. However, the pigs need actual food, and that's why Paul and his mom were out there. While his mother tended to the pigs, she left Paul in the truck. An hour went by, and his mother returned, but Paul was nowhere to be found. She frantically searched, thinking he would be easy to spot because of what he was wearing. Was he wearing red? He was. A red jacket. (gasps) That's a no-no. Just like Paula. That's what I'm saying. I I know. know. It's a no-no. You told me it's a thing now. (laughs) I listened. (laughs) Well, she called for help. Hundreds of people from the town joined the search, and they searched the dump, surrounding roads, even the mountain. They implemented a double-check system, which is exactly what it sounds like. As soon as one group finished searching the area, another group would search that same area. His scent was tracked by dogs, which ended along the highway and the intersection of East and Chapel Roads. And there's some local lore that his scent ended the same place that Paula was last seen. No, But again, that's local lore, so not sure. During the media coverage and everything, Paul's dad told the reporters that his son had been acting a little strange for a few days and that he just was really interested about the mountains lately. And he said that he felt that the mountains were calling for him, just beckoning him to come. So his dad thought he might have walked off and got lost or walked toward the mountain and someone picked him up and kidnapped him from that. But... No trace of Paul has ever been found. 
The fifth person we are talking about went missing two weeks later. On October 28, 1950, a 53-year-old Freda Langer was enjoying a camping trip with her family. That day, Freda and her cousin Herbert went on a hike near Somerset Reservoir. The other two family members were like, meh, go, we'll lounge, snacks, you know. I mean, I'd be the other two family members. Let's just be honest. Well, during the hike, Freda pulled a carry and slipped and fell into a nearby stream. She told Herbie to wait right there. (laughs) You know, I'm sure she's, that's what she said. She said, wait right there. She was going to go back, change, and, you know, be right back. But famous last words because she did not return. And when it had been a bit of time, Herb went back to the campsite and he was probably kind of mad. Like, what? Like, why the hell was I waiting? Mm-hmm. Holy shit. But then he discovered that she never even made it back to the campsite. Also, not who I thought was going to go missing in this situation. Mm. I really thought she's going to come back and be like, where the fuck is he? This is where I left him. Oh, true. Well, there were five searches conducted over the following two weeks, about 300 people searching, and even though they combed the ground and used helicopters, sadly, there was no trace of her found. Was she wearing red? No. However, on May 12, 1951, her body was finally discovered near Somerset Reservoir in an area that had been searched extensively what and that was seven months ago so there's no way they could have overlooked it and it was kind of out in the clearing but sadly because of the terrible decomposition of her body it made it impossible to decide on the cause of death Mm. with these cases the only thing they have in common is geographically close to one another but that's really it Freda's body is the only one that's been found, and everyone else remains a missing person. Some people say that the Bennington Triangle has cross-dimensional wormholes or something, which would explain the vanishing into thin air basically right in front of you. Others say UFO abductions, but most of these have been during the day or early afternoonish. And that's not really the, you know, normal M.O. for abductions, if you will. And no one saw anything flying. Right. But there have been sights of strange lights and, you know, stuff like that. So aliens are not out of the question. It's just not an explanation for everyone who's gone missing, I don't think. But if you think back, there's that Bennington monster in some point to the creature lore and say he still may roam the woods. Who knows? But don't you feel like if that really was it, it's not, but if it was, that like they would have done something, made some noise being dragged away, you know? You would think. But if he's over six feet tall and is like really like Bigfoot, I feel like he could just like snap their neck. But there's also talks that it could be a serial killer. However, they normally have, you know, patterns, certain victimology. But we know that there's some serial killers who do it as a crime of opportunity, like Israel Keys. Mm -hmm. So it's not necessarily out of the question. Or they might have all been different and not related at all. Maybe Mitty was killed during a hunting accident and they got rid of the body. 
maybe James was tired of his life at the retirement home and just like didn't come back. Yeah, didn't come back, decided like he would just take his chances to do something else, you know, he's old and mm-hmm. whatever. Or he could be like you said, he was using the bathroom and got to talking to someone, did something because it was delayed and they had weird delays. Mm-hmm. So he might have saw someone and then like, oh shit, and missed his bus. But if that was the case and he was planning on getting back, he would have gotten back at some point, you know? And maybe Freda was killed by her family mm-hmm. or her cousin. He might have did it and waited and then, did she not come back? Yeah. Like, she told me she was coming back, you she know? She fell in the water. Yeah. So she could have accidentally fell. Bonked her head. Uh-huh. And he was like, I don't want to get blamed. I can't save her. And Yeah, like... She did, and, uh, whoop, you know, and I don't know. However, if that was the case, why did her body appear in that same location seven months later? Maybe they dropped it. What? Like, maybe they put it there later. Like, they were like, okay, enough time has passed. Let's put her back out there. But how would they have hid the body quickly enough, like, for the search. Because you don't know how long it really was. True. I mean, only they in the woods know. True. And, like, with the kid, what eight-year-old sits in a car for an hour without, like, getting up and wandering away? Like, that's a long time for his mom to leave him in the car. Right. Even, like, even nowadays with their tablets and mm-hmm. switches and all the things... They still would be like, oh, what's going on over here? You know what I mean? Well, that's another theory for that is that he got curious and fell into the dump and the pigs ate him. Not alive. Or what if his parents killed him and fed him to the pigs because they knew. Pigs would eat anything. Mm Mm-hmm. Because then when his dad said that thing later in the interviews about the mountains calling him. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, then people did say, well, what if the parents killed him? And they, like, lawyered up and, you know, I mean, like, as you should if you feel, you know, whatever. But who knows? I hate to be like, oh, it was the parent. You know, just because. Oh, oh, true. If it wasn't, then, you know, they just always have this stigma. But, I mean. These are just theories. My money's on a serial killer. Well, for Paula, she was probably the biggest news story because of who her dad was and just, you know, money talks. Mm -hmm. And there was a theory that she either moved to Canada to be with a boyfriend or became a recluse living in the mountains. You know, just all kind of randomness. But, like, no one of her friends even said she had a boyfriend. Yeah, all very unlikely stories. Yeah, and then also, why did she not pack other shit then if she right. wasn't going? And why was she, like, halfway down a trail and she's like, whoop, let me go this way. Right. With her, she could have made it out. Like, she could have been like, I'm going to turn back and go this way. The older people, you know, might have just not looked right who knows Mm -hmm. you know she might have went a different way made it back to the highway 
and she hitchhiked there. So it could be that she hitchhiked with the wrong person. Could be. We don't know because no one saw her leave, but it also was later in the day. It's also very weird that it all happened like within a five-year span. Mm -hmm. Like nothing before, nothing after. So it's like, was there a serial killer in the area active during those years and then moved on or died or got arrested or, you know, what have you? Right. Well, I mean, there were other things. However, the five-year span is why these are so, like, stand out Mm -hmm. among those. It's just all unsolved and all within five years. Some to the day. Yeah, that's weird. But if it was a serial killer going back to relive it on the anniversary, uh, yep, my money's on a serial killer, not Bigfoot's cousin. Yeah, I don't think the the monster. Well, maybe it was a monster, but not that kind of monster. Very true. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) For my story this week, this was actually Donna's idea. So she knows what story I'm doing uh, because, well, it was her idea. And we wanted to celebrate Pride Month in, I mean, well, this is kind of a terrible way because we're talking about a murder, obviously. But we wanted to shine the light on some horrible things that the LGBTQ community has gone through. But Donna wasn't the only one that recommended it. One of the amazing members of the Creepy Naughty, Taylor, recommended it as well. Okay, so we are going to do the horrific murder of Brandon Tina. A couple of things before we get started. Brandon Tina was actually born and raised female, but identified as a male. He was born... Tina Renee Brandon. There is a documentary on, it's on Amazon Prime. It's an older documentary. It was made, I think, not long after the actual case. Um, And it had interviews with basically everybody. I can't believe they got so many people to do the interviews. And it's the story of Brandon Tina is the name of it. And some of the people that they got to interview were, I mean, people very close to him in the end, and they didn't say Tina, they said Tina. So, but literally, that's the only thing that has said anything other than Tina. So, I'm going to call him Brandon throughout, but just a caveat of pronunciation. Growing up, Brandon had a very difficult life. His mom, Joanne, had Brandon's sister, Tammy. Sorry, I know this is a lot of names. Like, off the bat, it's like, bam, three names. But she had Tammy when she was only 13. Can you imagine? No, I'm pretty sure me and Tiff were still playing with Barbie dolls. Uh Uh-huh. I mean, y'all were making them have sex, but... Well, they laid on the bed, naked. (laughs) (laughs) And then she had Brandon when she was just 16. But before Brandon was born, his dad was killed in... A car accident. Oh, gosh. And then right after Brandon was born, his mom got a staph infection and was on all these antibiotics. So she couldn't even hug him. Like, she couldn't hold him. And one of the podcasts I listened to about this brought up a good point. They were like, I wonder how that affected their bond, 
her not being able to hold Brandon for his first five days of life. Yeah, you know? yeah. And she's 16. Her boyfriend slash baby daddy died in a car accident. You know, it's just like, it's so much for this young family. Yeah, life-changing. I mean, like, literally, like, health scares, death, birth. Like, I mean, and... I mean, did they move somewhere, too? Because that's the only other life-altering like thing that right. they didn't experience right. in that snippet of time. Brandon was a very sickly kid. Like, he had pneumonia as a, as a baby in elementary school. He had mono. I think it was, like, in second grade. Like, these big illnesses for a kid. Brandon's mom, Joanne, did the best that she could. She had, like, retail jobs where she tried to make as much money as she could. They're from a very rural area in Nebraska. Joanne ended up getting married two different times when Brandon was young. They were both really toxic, involved a lot of alcohol, a lot of just toxic. And so they both ended in divorce and they moved in with Brandon's grandmother. Well, once they moved in, he started going to Catholic school. He and his sister, Tammy, started going to Catholic school which he did pretty well in. He was always seen as like a tomboy because he was born in 1972. So him growing up, there just wasn't a lot of, hell, there still isn't, but there damn sure wasn't back in the 70s and 80s understanding of people who are trans. So he was just seen like as a tomboy. He had a few boyfriends and, you know, you kind of see throughout Brandon's life where he really had a lot of internal turmoil and just struggle with trying to put himself into a label of, well, this isn't a gay relationship, you know, or this is, or, you know, oh, well, I like boys or, well, I like girls, but I'm, I'm not gay, you know, and, and he just had so much tied to the sexuality that I think, I don't know. I just feel like if he had a good mentor that hopefully he could, if he, if, you know, if he was born now, he wouldn't have had such an internal struggle. I just, it just breaks my heart, that internal struggle. Yeah. No, I know exactly what you mean. Because someone's gender identity is not tied to their sexual orientation. It is completely separate. Right. I think that's just why he had such a hard time. And I mean, what do I know? I wasn't, I, I never met him. I don't know what was in his brain. But that's just how I kind of imagine, you know, he's dealing with growing up, going to Catholic school. His mom, like, really pushed religion and all this on him. And he was just confused. You know, he was born female, identified as a male, wanted to live his life as a male, was attracted to girls, but was kind of attracted to boys too, but didn't really understand what that meant. Well, Brandon's best friend in school, her name was Sarah. They had so much in common, but one of the things that they bonded over the most was that Sarah's mom was very religious and like to the point of like, they have an altar in the house. And if she does even like the smallest thing, like she gets beaten and just a really bad home life. And so that let Brandon kind of open up to her a little bit to be like, wait, no, 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 mine's not that good too. And then they bonded that they both had actually been sexually assaulted by family members. 
Oh my gosh. A couple of things I read about Brandon said that it he was sexually assaulted for years by an uncle, but a lot of stuff just said a male family member. So I'm thinking uncle, but who knows? Because later in life, when this does come out and it's found out that this male relative was not only sexually assaulting Brandon, they were sexually assaulting his sister Tammy too. None of them like wanted to press charges or anything like that. So it never came to light who it was because they just wanted to kind of keep it under wraps. Brandon started being pretty rebellious in high school, which I mean, duh, with all the stuff that was going on at home, his inner turmoil, plus being sexually assaulted. Like, can you imagine? Of course, something's got to give. Well, and then his mom got a new boyfriend and same as before, there was a lot of alcohol involved, a lot of toxic situations with the mother and the boyfriend, plus his sister Tammy, who was, I think, about 16 at this time, maybe a little older, but she had a boyfriend that she moved out with. Tammy you know, became pregnant, and she put the baby up for adoption, and Brandon had a hard time with that, too, because he wanted to be a part of his niece's life, but again, he knew that, well, this is what's best because, I mean, his sister was not in a place to care for an infant. So no shade to Tammy for the decision that she made. I just mean that as this is how it has been said that it made Brandon feel. Well, Brandon is like, this is ridiculous. Mom and Tammy both have these toxic relationships with men. Like, I'm out. Like, I can't live here anymore. We had this friend, Tracy. And so he moved in with Tracy and her mother. But this situation was no better than what he was experiencing at home. In fact, I would even go as far to say as it was worse. Well, Tracy, the new friend he moved in with, and his old best friend, Sarah, were very jealous of one another. They, like, fought all the time. And Tracy very much was the alpha. Like, her way or the highway, especially when it came to Brandon. I mean, Tracy would even physically abuse Brandon. Like it just, as most domestic partnership or even platonic, you know, abuse of that nature starts, it was light hitting, that kind of thing. And then she eventually started like punching Brandon. But Brandon was in love and he wasn't going anywhere. And really, where was he going to go? He he had no one, you know. But eventually, he was skipping school and just not in a good place. And so, he finally ended everything with Tracy and was like, I'm going to move in with Tammy. So, he moved in with his sister. And he and Sarah started going to this skate park. And at this skate park is when Brandon really started going. Because up until this time, he was known as Tina. And living as a female. But when they started to go to the skate park, Brandon was like, what if I like pretended to be a boy? And so he did. He, you know, presented himself as a man when he, you know, when he went. And he met this girl who had a friend and her name was Heather. Heather was 14. Brandon at this time was 18. And when they met, he said his name was Billy. He hadn't found his identity as Brandon yet. But so he said his name was Billy. And they kind of talked for a while, and then this girl named Liz called him, and she was kind of flirty because 
she called him by accident and was like, oh, he's just, this boy sounds cute. Okay, hey. You know, so they started talking, and, and he introduced himself as Billy because Liz thought he was male, so that's how he identified, so let's go with it, you know. But this was just the very, very beginning of his him kind of dipping his toe in the water of beginning his transition. Brandon would would bind his breast down, put socks in his pants, anything that he felt like would make him look more masculine. You know, he always wore a t-shirt with like a kind of a button-up, like flowy type shirt on top of it. So nothing was tight against his breast. And this was Brandon finally living his life as a male and getting to experience what it's really like. He ends up moving in with his friend Heather And Brandon's mom would call Heather's house and leave all these voice messages and say, like, Brandon's really a girl, all this stuff to Heather. So Heather's like, what the hell? And he would say, oh, my mom, she, look, when she gets drunk, she goes crazy. She hates all my girlfriends. She always does this, you know, and, like, played it off like it was, you know, his mom being whatever. Well, as he and Heather got closer, they had talked about being, like, sexually assaulted by family members. He told Heather, okay, actually, I'm a hermaphrodite. My mom got to decide whether to raise me as male or female, and she chose female. And so he was like, but she was wrong. He even went as far to tell her that he had surgery planned, but none of that was true. Brandon was honestly exceptionally good at lying you know he had a couple of jobs but he made his money basically from like petty theft and he even had a psych eval that showed that he was a pathological liar but usually it was a means to an end for him to like get money and when he would get money he wouldn't even really use it on himself like he would buy stuff for the girls he was dating or what have you you know well he started stealing from heather's mom And she was like, fuck that, you're out. And he ended up getting arrested one of, like, probably over 20 times for, like, fraud and stuff. Wow. You know, writing bad checks or, you know, just that kind of thing. So with this one time, part of his probation was that he had to complete his GED and he had to start counseling. Well, during this time, he attempted suicide by taking a whole bottle of antibiotics And they ended up admitting him to this, like, basically on a psychiatric hold at a crisis center. And had to do counseling there, and they diagnosed him as a pathological liar and said that he had a sexual identity crisis. They talked with him about his sexual orientation. They talked to him about his gender identity. But we're in, you know, early, mid-80s. It was not i mean again it's still not very well understood but again a damn sure wasn't then i mean they even said he wasn't depressed and it's like no he but he just attempted suicide so yeah i'm gonna guess he's depressed you know so they just there weren't a lot of help when he even broached the subject of transitioning with his mom his mom laughed at him what yes so there was just there's just so much to unpack with poor brandon's story like He has so much trauma and so many times in his life where if something would have gone just a little bit different, 
how different his life would have been if he would have had some sort of role model, if he would have had a good psychologist or psychiatrist or whomever it was when he was in that crisis center, you know, to help him understand his gender identity and separate it from his sexual orientation and understand. Because I think, again, even now, we want to put people in categories because that's how our brain processes things. So we want to know, like, okay, so are you gay or straight are you you know male female all this it's just I think it's just how people try to understand their world and so I think that had Brandon had good counseling he wouldn't necessarily maybe feel the need to identify well am I straight am I a lesbian am I you know what am I because it doesn't matter it's just a word yeah and that's coming from my cisgendered brain that doesn't understand any of it because I just am doing the best I can. So also, little caveat, if I say anything that in this episode that like the terminology has been updated or something like that, please let me know because we're always open to learn the correct terminology for things. Like I just recently learned we shouldn't say transgendered. We should say trans or transgender, um, not gendered. And, you know, that kind of thing. So please, if we... You know, if we say any terminology that's not up to date, please let us know. Or if we just have a misconception of something, please let us know too. Well, Brandon eventually had enough of his time at home. The people that knew he was born female were intermingling too much with the people that he was identifying himself as male to. You know, it was just, it was too much crossing, too many people knew that he was trans and so he was like i want out i want a new life so he moved to fall city nebraska when brandon got to fall city he was 20 years old and again he wanted to start his life where people only knew him as brandon fall city is a very small town the documentary i watched that i told you about earlier they even say like how small it is. There's only a couple of families who aren't white that live there. There, as far as they know, aren't any LGBTQ people, you know. Yeah. I mean, hello, there are, but Mm -hmm. closeted. You know, it's just very small rural mentality. Well, they're not as small as my town was. I had three people at the time. I'm just saying. True. God, I wish I would have said that out loud because three was really my guess. (laughs) Well, once he gets there, he makes some good friends. He meets a lady by the name of Lisa Lambert. And he moves in with Lisa. And Lisa introduces him to her friend, Lana Tisdale. Brandon and Lana hit it off. They become, you know, boyfriend, girlfriend. And he tells her... That, just like he did before, he said, I'm hermaphrodite, like, I've got a sex change operation coming up. And she's like, okay, cool. You know, like, whatever that means, you know. Like, one of his ex-girlfriends that he had told that in the documentary says, I had no idea what that was. I had to go home and look it up in a dictionary. And she was like, what I found in the dictionary said something about animals. I was like, I'm dating an animal. Like, she had no, you know what I mean? Like, she couldn't even find it in the dictionary. So... I mean, again, this is like 
small town. Well, 19, at this point now, it's like 1993, so there is no fucking Google. There is only lick your finger and flip the pages. Two of Lana's friends, John Lauder and Marvin Tom Neeson, he goes by Tom. So, John and Tom. John and Tom were both well-known to law enforcement. I mean, this was, you know, not necessarily all the most upstanding citizens that Brandon was running around with. Well, Brandon did what Brandon had always done, and that was steal money. And he got arrested. And there's a couple of different scenarios, not scenarios, but explanations of how this next thing happened. One thing said that when he was arrested and, you know, how they put all that in the paper, it said, you know, his given name at birth, Tina Brandon, and then it said sex, female. And so his friends in Fall City were like, hold the fuck up. Brandon's a boy, you know, and that's how they learned. But the documentary I watched, it had a sheriff's deputy interviewed, not the one we're going to hate later, but a different one. And he says that, like, he called them to be like, hey, we arrested her. And they're like, what are you talking about? And he's the one that said Brandon is actually Tina Brandon, not Brandon Tina. And that that was how they learned. So I'm not exactly sure which is the exact story. But a lot of the stuff I found said it was what was in the newspaper that they were like, hold the phone. What's going on? But I don't know. So when Lana found out, she was very confused. Her mom even like kind of attacked Brandon was like, tell me the truth kind of thing. And like pushed him into a chest of drawers and that even fell back and broke a window. You know, like it was just this very like heated, like tell us the truth. And he wouldn't. But that is his truth. He is male. He may have female genitalia, but he identifies as male. He's male. But tell that to 1993, this family, and they just can't, they just don't understand. I mean, the whole documentary, most of the people use the pronoun she, including his mother. Wow. I think in the movie, okay, so if you haven't ever heard this story there's a movie that came out in 1999 called boys don't cry and amazing it's one of the best movies ever and it stars hillary swank as brandon which in like recent years i feel like maybe even more than just recent has gotten a little bit of heat for not using someone who is actually trans in that role i think that film did the best it could for 1999 you know yeah so all that to say in the movie It makes it look like Lana stayed with him after she didn't. But I don't know how much of that is to, like, distance herself from what happened next. If I'm remembering right, in the movie, it, because they kind of turned on her, too, because they're like, are you gay? Are you this? And so she's like, no, no. And, you know, she didn't want to be labeled as something quote unquote bad and so she's going to distance herself Mm -hmm. to save herself yeah well a couple of things about that one that goes back to gender identity is a totally separate construct than sexual orientation also brandon with at least one of his exes that i know had sex and used 
a strap on and that sexual partner said that she had no idea now whether or not she didn't know for sure I, I don't know but according to her he used like she thought they had sexual intercourse and that he had a penis you know so I don't think it's out of the realm of possibilities that Lana didn't actually know and again you have to separate the sexual orientation from the gender identity okay so the arrest happened on December 19th 1999 on Christmas Eve, they were having a party. I think it was at Tom's house. And Tom and John were complete fucking assholes that could not process and could not understand someone being trans. And they didn't want to. No, they were almost like a classic like incel mentality of... Actually, I listened to this podcast called Trans Panic, the podcast, and it's it's actually a pretty cool podcast. The beginning of the episode, they talked about current like crimes on people who are trans, and then they do a story. I think they just released like an episode a month, so there's not a ton of episodes, but they really touched on this next part a lot as far as, again... I don't even I don't think they called it that the incel mentality, but that's essentially what they were saying and that it's almost like John and Tom could not understand that although Brandon was born with female genitalia, he identified as male and and didn't want to have sex with them. And on that trans panic podcast, I was like, fuck, that's so true. Like they were talking about how in that like mentality it's like every hole is made for a dick Mm -hmm. you know and if you don't want their dick then something's wrong with you kind of thing yeah well at this party tom and john grabbed brandon one is holding him and one rips his pants down in front of everybody to expose expose him and they forced Lana to look at him she didn't like she wouldn't she wouldn't and they like forced her to look at him gosh well after that they beat him up I'm talking punch him and kick him in the ribs and y'all Brandon was like 5'3 120 pounds maybe and They beat the shit out of him. And then they took him to their car and raped him. In the documentary that I've referred to a couple of times, the Brandon Tina story, like I said earlier, they interview Tom and John. And, I mean, I wanted to punch both of them in their smug fucking faces, but Tom wouldn't answer many questions in the interview. But John... Very much so, like, downplayed his part in the rape. Like, he said that he couldn't get it up mm-hmm. because he had been drinking and he was thinking about his then fiance that he felt like basically he'd be cheating, you know, raping someone. Uh huh. Um, that he actually did ejaculate in the condom because it was like, he said it was because of all the up and down and like in and out and. <laughs> 
because he like had an erection and lost it and blah blah. And I'm like, no, you raped him. Yeah, that's why that's, you came. Yeah, that sex. Yes, uh, in and out, up and down. That's fucking sex. Yeah, yeah, you fucking raped him. Raped him brutally. Raped him. That's why you ejaculated in the fucking condom, you fucker. Yes. So, they fucking took turns raping Brandon because they're pieces of shit. Beat him up some more. And then took him into the bathroom to force him to take a shower. And they said, if you tell anyone, we will kill you. Well, Brandon got out through a window and didn't take a shower. Because at this point in time, Lana had left. She left after they exposed him and was like, are you okay? And he was like, yeah. She's like, I'm leaving. You know, I'll be back to get you kind of thing. So she was gone home. And from what I gather from the documentary, I didn't see this anywhere else. But Brandon went there and they were like, no, you have to go to the police. Like, I don't care what we have found out about you. Like, no one deserves to be raped. And so he went to the police. When Brandon got to the police station, they did a rape kit on him. And he had one of the most horrific, victim-blaming, sexualizing a victim interview. You will, One of them, the worst that you'll ever see in your life or hear in your life. That documentary actually has audio excerpts of this interview it has a little bit more than what I'm going to read you now, but I am going to read you some of it. So this is the sheriff trying to get an understanding of what happened before and during the rape. He said, after he pulled your pants down and seen you as a girl, what did he do? Did he fondle you any? Brandon says, no. Sheriff, he didn't fondle you any, huh? Didn't that kind of amaze you? Doesn't that kind of uh, get your attention somehow that he wouldn't have put his hands in your pants and played with you a little bit? No. Brandon didn't say anything. What the fuck? Sheriff, you were half-ass drunk. I can't believe that if he pulled your pants down and you were female, that he didn't stick his hand in you or his fingers in you. Brandon, well, he didn't. Sheriff, I can't believe he didn't. You're missing the point. Uh Uh-huh. So now this is about the rape. And it's talking about, because remember how I said they took Brandon to the car and they raped him in the back of the car? Sheriff, did he have a heart on when he got back there or what? Brandon, I don't know. I didn't look. Sheriff, you didn't look. Did he take a little time working it up or what? Did you work it up for him? Brandon, no, I didn't. Sheriff, you didn't work it up for him? Brandon, no. I was fucking raped, you moron. Mm-hmm. Sheriff, then you think he had it worked up on his own or what? Brandon, I guess so. I don't know. Sheriff, you don't know. Did, when he got in the back seat, you were already spread out back there ready for him, waiting for him? Brandon, no, I was sitting up when he got back there. Sheriff, and you never had sex before? Brandon, no. Sheriff. How old are you, Brandon? 21. Sheriff. And if you're 21, uh, I'm pretty sure he knows he's fucking 21. Oh, my God. You think you'd have, you'd have trouble getting it in? Brandon says nothing. 
why do you run around with girls instead of guys being you're a girl yourself? Brand- oh, my gosh. Brandon, why do I what? Sheriff, why do you run around with girls instead of guys being you're a girl yourself? Brandon, I haven't the slightest idea. Sheriff, you haven't the slightest idea? You go around kissing other girls? The girls that don't know about you thinks you're a guy? Do you kiss them? Brandon says, I have a sexual identity crisis. Sheriff, a what? Brandon, a sexual identity crisis. Sheriff, do you want to explain that? Brandon, I don't know if I can even talk about it. I got this this really good article. It's uh, called A Boy's Life, and it's by Catherine Wells, and that's what broke it down so well, like, in text. And it was pretty... This is a pretty cool article because she actually, and I know I'm jumping around here, but she went back and interviewed the current sheriff about this and talked about, like, what types of things have been put in place and all that. And, you know, of course, he defended his, to an extent, not to the, like, oh, he didn't do anything wrong, but he defended the sheriff in that he did the best that he could with the knowledge that he had kind of defense. But with this sheriff, she actually set up LGBT sensitivity training and from a queer advocacy group, the PFLAG group. And they did the sensitivity training with this law enforcement. And I thought that was really cool that like, this is a really shitty moment in their legacy. Yeah. But they are, growing and i thought that that was a huge step to have this lgbtq sensitivity training oh definitely that is cool so after brandon goes through this horrible interview process where he's basically assaulted again yes verbally yes and again victim blamed oh he runs around with girls so you kiss girl, you know what I mean? Like yes. victim blaming, sexualizing the victim. What do you like with the what do you mean they didn't put their hands down? You know yes. what I mean? Like Ugh. I find that hard to believe that they. I mean, ooh, yes. ooh. And then fucking Brandon leaves, and they don't fucking press charges. And guess what? They quote lost the rape kit. Of course. So guess what happens? John and Tom found out that Brandon filed the report. So what do they do? They fucking go on the hunt for Brandon. Right. Three days after Brandon made the report is when the police pulled John and Tom in for questioning and didn't arrest them because there was, quote, no fucking evidence. Okay. So December 31st, 1993, John and Tom drove to Lisa Lambert's house, which, remember, this is where... Brandon was living at the time. They broke in, demanded to know where Brandon was. Lisa wouldn't tell them, and they ended up finding Brandon hiding under a bed. They asked if anybody else was in the house, and Philip Devine was in the house. He was actually just in town because he was dating Lana's sister, and so he was just in town, like, doing, like, a family get-together with his girlfriend. That's why he was at Lisa's house. Wow. So Philip, Lisa, Brandon, and Lisa's baby, Tanner, were all that was in the house. 
And those two pieces of shit shot all three adults. Luckily, they left baby Tanner alive. Tom noticed that Brandon was still twitching. And he asked John to give him a knife. And then he stabbed Brandon in the chest just to make sure he was dead. Oh, God. So, shooting and killing all three of the adults, but then adding insult to injury and stabbing Brandon just to make sure he's dead. The two ended up getting charged with capital murder, and Tom turned on John and testified against him, and he got a life sentence, that which he's appealing, which is why he wouldn't answer some of those questions in the documentary, and John got sentenced to death. So he's on death row, and they are pieces of fucking shit. Brandon's mom ended up suing the county and the sheriff for failing to prevent Brandon's death. And apparently she got like $80,000 from it. But I just want to talk a little bit too about how much things have changed since this happened. I know we have a very long way to go supporting the rights for the LGBTQ community, but a way long way to go for people who are trans. But we're getting there. Not close, but we're better. And just to show at the time, 1993, that even the gay and lesbian community just had such a hard time with people who are trans and understanding and all of that, that I found an article by, her name's Donna Minkowitz, and she writes for The Village Voice, which is this kind of iconic magazine that wrote about like the counterculture and when this case broke donna minkowitz wrote an article i mean this you can you can still find it on there like this really long detailed like three page in this newspaper article about brandon's story and i found this amazing article that she wrote in june of 2018 that says how I broke and botched the Brandon Tina story. And it is just this great article of her revisiting the original article and saying, look, this is how wrong I was about understanding, as she says, the article's implicit anti-trans framing. And she says that in the article, you know, she really made Brandon out to be like a lesbian who hated her body and how she was ignorant about people who are trans and she is a lesbian and you know just how much she didn't know and I think that that happens a lot especially for Brandon especially because of his sexual abuse as a child a lot of people put that as why he was trans like he's trying to regain power that he didn't have because men attacked you know all this stuff but this was this article to me I really loved it and it just shows how much we can grow because even someone who is writing for this progressive newspaper that highlights this quote-unquote counterculture of the time and even her looking back at her work and going, no, I really didn't get that. And I feel like we're going to do that in 20 years 
looking back even on this episode and be like, I thought I understood trans culture a little bit and I don't fucking understand it at all. Or I, you know, or I didn't, whatever. So I think it's just, it just shows that there's hope for understanding. Definitely. The documentary was free if you have Amazon Prime. It's a, it was a quick watch. I mean, it's old as shit. You know, it's, you can tell it's, it's old, but I recommend it. I really liked that Transpanic podcast. That's the only episode I listened to. But it seemed like it had some really interesting cases that they covered. But this story is what happens when people hate. People hate what they don't understand. They hate because they think that someone is different from them. This is what happens. Yeah. Human life is what we lose. And that shouldn't be the case. So my biggest takeaway from this is to respect people, love people, and I think just do your best to understand where someone's coming from because you never know their life. There is this girl on TikTok and she is blowing the fuck up. Her name is Rhea and she's like like a million likes on some of her TikToks. She's a lesbian and one of her TikToks is her story. And it was how she had been married to two men, was in these abusive relationships, not living her truth, and then finally was like, I'm done. I'm this is who I am. I'm a lesbian. And she went from suicidal ideations to living her best life, has a beautiful child, and is, I mean, like the hottest human being on TikTok right now very sexy and (laughs) also blowing up with all the followers you know so it just to me that just shows you like you never know somebody's story you can make assumptions when you see things and all of that but you never know the trauma that someone has lived through so just take a second everyone has a story everyone wants to share their story just listen don't hate don't make assumptions just listen And I think that goes for Pride Month. It goes for everything that's happening right now with the hate and just upheaval that we're having in our lives right now. Just listen. And remember, creep it real and and don't don't get scared. scared.